From Reboot, this is In Quarantine. I'm Steve Bodo. We are back after a few weeks away. Uh, and by away, I mean, uh, I, didn't really, I didn't really go anywhere. Uh, still just bouncing between Brooklyn and slightly upstate New York. Uh, so much has happened since our last episode in mid-May. And uh, I'm going to recap exactly none of it. You do not need me for that. You have spent hours a day ingesting news through all available orifices, I'm sure. Uh, here in the Northeast, uh, Corona has burned through its first wave pretty much. So that's good. But any place that's nice in winter, it seems like it's kind of bad right now. Uh, my mom would uh, usually, she'd be in New York in July, but she's stuck in Tucson. She's locked down again after being locked down for much of the spring. Arizona, you know, it's one of those states where the governor, um, the Republican governor, I probably don't need to mention, he was not only opening the state up early, but he was actively forbidding mayors in Arizona from requiring mask wearing. He's like a double agent for the virus. And this whole thing, there, there are understandable mistakes. Like this is not an easy problem. But then there are moves that some people in government are making that are so unnecessary. They seem almost purposeful. And seemingly purposeful, even malign incompetence is something my guest knows a little bit about because he is an incompetent, evil person. No, 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 no. Uh, no. What he is, uh, Jacob Sobroff, is a correspondent for NBC News, and he's got a new book out about his experience reporting on what, until recently, had been pretty much leading the race for Trump administration's most malignantly incompetent policy, child separation. Jacob won a 2019 Walter Cronkite Award for his reporting work. Also, as my older daughter pointed out when she saw the jacket photo on his new book, he, he looks like Nick from New Girl. <laughs> so with both of those things in mind, I want to say, Jacob, welcome to In Quarantine. Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here. And I think incompetent and evil is, is the way that some people might describe me. <laughs> well, good. We're going to get into that. Um, <laughs> uh, but actually, b before we get into the book, which uh, I'm eager to hear about, um, just some background on like quarantine and you, you live in LA. I do. I grew up there. So what's your read on why the virus has gotten such a foothold there? I mean, I, w I wish I knew. I, I spent most of quarantine on, um, parental leave. Actually, we had a we had a baby girl in February, and so it overlapped with my my time off from work. So I wasn't um, Mazel Tov. Thank you, thank you. Um, I wasn't I wasn't really out and about all that much um, for work. I would normally be, and so so I don't know. I mean, maybe we did try to get back to normal life a little too soon. You know, it's a it's a scary time, and it seems like we should all kind of be walking it back uh, right now here in LA. Unfortunately, yeah. Now, are you have you been doing some of this reporting like from your house? Do you have a set at home that you? Yeah, I'm sitting in front of my. I'm sitting in my laundry room, where <laughs> I wrote most of my book, and now I am broadcasting from uh, over the last couple of days on a daily basis. Um, I was doing live shots from my front yard uh, with socially distant NBC News crews coming to the house in the morning, mm -hmm. but um, I think they got sick of coming here and standing in my small front yard. So we, we set up a <laughs> camera system in the laundry room and, uh, and, and here we are. 
Now, I haven't seen that. Now, have you turned the laundry room into something that looks a little more uh, repertorial? You know, put some books back there or something. No, nah, it definitely more. still looks like a laundry room. I got, I, I did not get very highly rated. I got, I got a seven out of 10 on Room Raider. I don't know if you're familiar. I am. Um, yeah. So seven, that's not, I was, it's not terrible for a to be honest room, with you. Really not I was, I was a C plus student. So for me, I feel pretty good about it. The, the, the washer and dryer are stacked, uh, thankfully behind a door in the shot, but, uh, but they're there. I just don't run them during, during my broadcasts. And does, uh, does NBC, do they give you a little bit of budget to spruce the place up? I mean, it is, it's in their shot. No, I did. I did go out to the yard and pick a couple olive branches off the tree and uh, put them in a vase, uh, put them right behind me. But that was not paid. That was not time paid for by NBC News. It wasn't. Um, and was that before or after the seven out of ten? That, that was actually before, unfortunately. It was. Uh, well, that that so, so bought I, you a couple of points. I don't know what else I could do. I I really don't. So uh, your book it's called Separated. Um, tell us what is it about and why did you write it. Um, so literally the word separated refers to the family separation crisis, uh, in 2018. So I ended up unintentionally in the middle of an unprecedented abuse of the human rights of children. Um, and that's not just according to me, it's according to the American Academy of Pediatrics and Physicians for Human Rights who called the deliberate separation of 5,000 migrant kids from their parents, a torture. Uh, you know, they said it meets the clinical definition of torture, what the administration did. Mm-hmm. And while while I was there and I saw it with my own eyes, all the stuff that we all remember, um, mylar blankets, you know, kids under them on concrete floors and being supervised by security contractors in a watchtower um, and going into a former Walmart that was 250,000 square feet holding 1500 migrant boys um, hundreds of which were separated and allowed outside only two hours a day. Um, I, I I saw it, but I had no idea how it could have possibly happened in the United States of America. And so what I wanted to do was basically pick up where I left off and explore what I didn't see in real time to figure out how it's possible that this happened. And and that's what the book is. It seems to be a journey through the bureaucracy, the Justice Department, Homeland Security, bureaucrats, several layers down, people local on the ground in Texas. The part that was uh, the most interesting to me might have been just how um, how it seems to ping pong back and forth between this was intentional versus this was not intentional. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think, knowing what I know now, um, there's no way that doing this wasn't intentional to these children. And the wheels started turning before Trump went into office. And it led to this series of events where they first John Kelly admitted they were considering it in early 2017 on CNN. And they didn't admit it again until the policy blew up in their face uh, in the spring and summer of, of 2018. And, you know, just one more thing on the intentionality of it all. Kirsten Nielsen you know, I'll never forget this, tweeted out, there is no family separation policy, period, at the height she of the was, crisis. She was the Homeland Security Secretary. Exactly. Yeah. And what I've learned since, and I write about in the book, is that not only was there a policy, it was her signature on the line marked option three. She had three choices of what to pick in terms of how to stop migrants from coming to the United States. And that was the one that she chose over the warnings from her own general counsel right. that it 
could likely violate the constitutional rights of the migrants coming to the United States. So it was intentional. She made a public statement that this policy doesn't exist when it was her not a very long time before. Um, And why did did they want to do it? What was their purpose? Deterrence, which 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 goes back to the larger point of American immigration policy has been based on the idea of keeping people out, um, deterring them from coming for for 30 years at least. And that's Clinton, Bush, Obama, and then Trump. But it seems to me weird that you would have a policy that's supposed to work through deterrence, uh, but then keep it secret. You know, you're exactly right. And someone else said that to me the other day. And I I hadn't thought of it in that way, but you're you're absolutely right. It's one of two things. Like it's it's either just dumb or it's deeply incompetent. Because I mean, if you know, during the Cold War, it wouldn't have done us a lot of good to develop all these weapons uh, to deter Russia and then not told them about it. Right. They want they look. They I think on the one hand, there was a faction that wanted people to know, and and Katie Waldman, who became Katie Miller, the wife of Stephen Miller today, and is now. <laughs> Is that a name that should not be spoken on on the podcast? You didn't speak it as much as you want. You're just going to get that reaction. Yeah, you know, she told me point blank, uh, and at the time she was a homeland security spokesperson. Now she's the communications director for the vice president of the United States and in charge of messaging the response to the coronavirus uh, outbreak. That they did it to get the attention of Congress to force them to change the laws. That basically (laughs) would it would be so vile that Congress would have no choice but to enact different laws, more restrictive laws to get away from separation. So certain people did want this out there and they wanted it seen. She others, thought this policy was not. so vile. And then later she married Stephen Miller. You have stated two facts correctly. I detect an irony, which you may not be at liberty to uh, concur with. But for the record, I note that irony. Thank you. Please continue. Um, to go back and, and sort of piece apart how how this went down and the people who who did try to stop it from happening and and that is something I do want to underscore there were there are very good people in this government career people who have dedicated their lives to bettering the welfare of children in the custody of the government um who, oh, yeah, who tried to stop clear. this on multiple there's, occasions there's a number of people who were working there they weren't political appointees but they were no. uh, they were in the bureaucracy and they were trying to stop it that doesn't mean all career officials, though, did. And oh, no, in the no, no. Of, but, but those that yeah. did were career officials. Oh, there's no doubt. And most of them were in the Office of uh, Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is a, a small agency or department within Health and Human Services, which is the, the larger overall federal agency, cabinet level agency. And, and so these guys, Commander Jonathan White, who people probably would recognize that they saw him on TV. Um, he's a bald guy who would always go into these t- t- hearings wearing his full um, commissioned uniform from the public health service. They look like naval officers. Right. Um, he, on on multiple occasions, warned of the implications for children to people in DHS, but even career people in DHS, not just, not just the political appointees, didn't listen. Now, in addition to implementing this policy, then it also got executed in a pretty fucked up and incompetent way. And am I wrong? There are still a number of children like who are lost in the system. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And in fact, it's a number that can't be calculated yet because um, I talked to yesterday, 
I was talking to Lee Gallant, who was the lead lawyer for the ACLU, without whom yes, uh, the I, policy I, wouldn't have been ended. Yeah, I, I, it, I uh, interviewed Lee when I was at Patriot Act. We did a, I mean, we did a, you know, we did an episode on uh, border policy. Saw, and Lee was one yeah, of our exactly. Interviews. Yeah, uh, great guy. He's a great guy and super, super smart. And I was talking to Lee yesterday, and Lee said to me uh, that they're they don't know the number of kids who are still out there and not reunited because. Basically, there are three different batches of separated children that make up the 5,400 or so kids that were taken by Trump. The first is during the separation policy itself. The second was before the policy officially started. And the third was subsequent to the policy ending. There have been over a thousand kids, according to the ACLU, who have been separated. And so what's up with that batch? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot. How did that continue? Like, I could understand if for a couple of days, like the message didn't get clearly to a few Border Patrol officers or whatever, but a thousand's a lot. It's because the government doesn't consider extended family, aunts or uncles or grandparents or siblings uh, to be parents. And the and the point is just this. Family separations are still happening. They're even happening um, from parents. And and. And th- right now, as we talk in ICE family detention, there are um, 130 or so children at risk of separation from their parents. A judge has ordered them released due to COVID outbreaks inside mm. ICE detention, uh, but the government will not release them together with their parents. And the Trump administration, if they wanted to, could do it right now, um, but they but they are choosing not to. And the, the justification given by Chad Wolf, another architect of family separations, who today is the acting secretary of Homeland Security, is that he didn't want to do a quote unquote jailbreak. And mind you, these migrants are not in jail. They're in family detention, and they're there because they're seeking asylum. They have committed no crimes. Uh, Yeah. So two things. One is just, yeah, that a comment like that is so telling, a jailbreak. And a policy like this is so telling about, and sometimes you hear language about how they, it's a lot of people in this administration who seem to sincerely not regard immigrants as uh, as human beings. I don't know how else to state it. It sounds super grandiose to say, but their actions seem to belie that. Uh, Asylum is an international right or law. And the Trump administration is essentially acting as if that is not the case. And then there's the incompetence. So they still don't know where a lot of people are. And there were many months that went by when there were thousands of kids, I think, like they didn't know how to connect them with their parents. Right. That's where the malignance and the incompetence really seem to come together. Like if you can't get your act together enough to uh, adequately track where the children you're taking from their parents are going, then you're really not trying. Well, you, you know, and you want to know something? I used to say uh, during the coverage of this in real time, there was never a plan and there's no plan to reunite. And in one measure, I was wrong. There were plans and people did know ultimately, that the systems weren't ready for reunification once separation happened. They were warned on multiple levels by people in ICE, by people in HHS, all throughout the government. But the Trump administration didn't listen to those warnings, and they moved forward um, notwithstanding those warnings. And so- Who did specifically? Well, I'll give you one example. Scott Lloyd, the director of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, the then director, a Trump political appointee, when in April of 2018, Caitlin Dickerson published really what was 
can only be described as a bombshell expose saying that the Trump administration had separated 700 kids uh, along the border. He was he was furious and beside himself that that number had leaked from his department to The New York Times. And his first instinct was to get rid of an informal list that was keeping track of separated parents and children. And if you talk to that didn't um, happen, but it was that's right. So, no, ultimately, the career staff stopped it from happening. Um, And he never officially gave an order, but it was discussed in meetings and. You you said earlier, you know, what is it? Is it negligence? Is it malicious intent? You know, I can't say. Only he can say Why what choose? he was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But it, so yeah. It, it, it rhymes with, if we had less testing, there'd be fewer COVID cases. Well, as a matter of fact, we're dealing with some of the same people. So- Is that right? Health and, health and human services- was overseeing the children and health and human services was overseeing the initial response to the coronavirus pandemic. You know, Katie Miller, the spokesperson for Mike Pence, the lead spokesperson on coronavirus was the lead spokesperson for the Homeland Security Department on family separations. Chad Wolf, architect of family separations, is now in charge for Homeland Security of the border closings and the movement of this human is very beings. interesting. Yeah. Do you do you see any uh, similarities in the way that this group of people is responding for, to one uh, situation and to the current one? Yeah, of course. I was home with our newborn, and I would watch on the news as all of these officials who I knew mm-hmm. from family separations were paraded out into these daily briefings with the president. And it was the same story. It was warnings from career officials about the virus um, and what a global pandemic would do. Uh, presented to the Trump administration and preventative measures were not taken. So it makes you think that uh, whether it's the president or or people very near him were somehow pleased with the way that these people handled the child separation uh, scandal and so moved them on to this next very important thing. What is it that do you think in in the view of the of the president, they did well? Why were they rewarded with an even more important assignment? I don't want to say even more important, but that, you know, of, of greater scale anyway. Yeah. I, well, one thing I know for sure is that while the president admitted that the pictures and the sounds of the separations is why he ended the policy by executive order, ultimately he didn't want to end it. He was boxed into a corner. He had to end it, but I don't think he disliked it. People elsewhere have reported it. He wanted to restart family separations, but I think he didn't like the public outrage over it, but the policy itself was something that I think he felt was effective. Right. Wow. If people So why not just... put those people in charge of the coronavirus response? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, this Katie Waldman character, very interesting to me. I'm going to look more into that. I don't know. You weren't invited to their <laughs> wedding, were you? I was not. I heard it was at the Trump Hotel. Oh, and I have to I say- I bet it was. <laughs> it I, 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 do have to, I, I do have to say about, about Katie, I, I am- in one way, very grateful to her. In all seriousness, I would not have been invited no, into those facilities that. in the book I if it was that. not for her. But, that, and I wanted to ask you about that. She made a point of getting you in there uh, to see this twice. Thing. But so, what was she expecting to happen? Do you think when inviting you and a uh, and some other reporters? I in? think she wanted. I think she did want the images to get out there, but from journalists, not from angry Democratic members of Congress. So that so she went to MSNBC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Go figure. 
Um, you know, while what she said to me and a lot of the stuff that she did, people can judge for themselves. I find it incomprehensible. She she's the one who put me in position to see this stuff. And for whatever reason, that that just is what it is. Yeah. I mean, it must be the case that she and the people she's working for sincerely thought that like it's not that bad because there's stuff that they don't let the media see. Uh, That's true. And, I, and in fact, they decided to because I think there was so much uncertainty about what was happening to these kids. They decided, yeah. let's just show and hey, it won't look that bad. Um, but it looked that bad. It didn't look good. No, nope. it looked pretty bad. Um, I've got one more question for you, and you can answer yep. this in a uh, very figurative way. It doesn't have to be literally about ritual or whatever, but in in this time, what would you say is the Jewiest thing that you have done? And the answer Oof. doesn't have to be like, I went to Shabbat. It could also be like, I worried a great deal about something. But like, <laughs> <laughs> That's every day. My anxiety is so through the roof. Oh my God. I'm on, in that respect, it is. It's like, my my I, i'm on anxiety overdrive but that's also book combined with children and maybe it wasn't the most jewish thing i've done but my i guess i realized that my four-year-old i grew up doing shabbat and going to jewish ah. preschool and stuff and he i don't think we had our first shabbat with him during the quarantine at my sister's house and he once he discovered the word shabbat shalom he's running around the house screaming shabbat shalom for days and days and uh I, it made me happy. It made me drop back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it probably it wasn't. It wasn't my favorite thing to do, but the little kid loves it, and and that's a blessing, as my grandmother would say. And that's a blessing. Well, in the spirit of a four-year-old uh, saying that thing that he doesn't quite know what it means, that's right. I I will say to you uh, here on this midweek day, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom to you, my friend. <laughs> Uh, Jacob, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, the book, again, is called Separated. You can get more information about it on the link on our show page. For In Quarantine, I'm Steve Bodo saying, why, yes, now I do know what comorbidity means. 